This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Jocelyn Peterson is a graduate of Brigham Young University. She grew up in Pueblo, Colorado, and now lives with her husband and two of her children in American Fork, Utah. Jocelyn co-founded the nonprofits, the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, the Council for Sustainable Healing, and serves as an advisor to the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. Jocelyn is a subject in the upcoming As Prescribed documentary film and the author of Seeds of Hope, A Journey Through Medication and Madness Toward Meaning. She is a speaker at continuing education courses for doctors and healthcare providers, and is a writer for the Mormon Women Project. I'm Tara McCausland, and I'd like to welcome our listeners and thank Jocelyn for joining me today. Thanks, Jocelyn. I'm really excited, actually, for our listeners to hear your story. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be able to share it and and hopefully uh, share some hope, too, along with it. So in the April 2020 conference, Elder Anderson spoke of spiritually defining memories. Loved that talk. Can you share a spiritually defining memory from your youth that has buoyed you up over the years? You know, I, I grew up in a home that was LDS. Both of my parents were converts, but I, I didn't really, we didn't have certain habits, I guess I would say. And I didn't really start studying the Book of Mormon on my own until the age of 13 when I attended a youth conference. Um, yeah, so there was a gentleman there giving a, a talk and his story really impacted me and I didn't really understand what was going on with me or, or why I was feeling the way I was feeling at that time. I just ended up out in the foyer crying, <laughs> which was really unusual for me back then. I was kind of hardcore, I didn't cry. <laughs> and he actually, happened upon me on his way out and he took the time to sit and talk with me and he asked me what was going on and I was just kind of you know a brick wall I don't know you know (laughs) and he's well is there anything I can do to help you no you know and then he asked me if I would make him a promise and I said yeah and he asked if I would start reading the scriptures every day and in that moment I knew that's exactly the answer I was looking for, for why I was so unhappy in my life at that time and and what needed to change. Following his example, I started reading the Book of Mormon every day for an hour. This was in the summertime. And eventually that that kind of whittled down to about 20 to 15 minutes. But I was very, very faithful. And as, as I began to really study the scriptures, I began to develop a testimony. And that led to an experience when I was about 16 and I was attending seminary every morning. Um, My father was actually my seminary teacher at the time. And I had a friend that I was trying to help out. And I was really concerned for his spiritual welfare. I mean, I I really was. He he seemed to be floundering and and questioning faith and religion. And I was trying to answer all these questions. And, you know, we kind of have these spiritual or these, these doctrinal arguments. And finally, one day, I just decided to bear my testimony to him to stop resting with the scriptures and and just do what I had been taught to do in seminary and let him feel the spirit instead. And we were in the middle of the school day walking through a crowded hallway. (laughs) And 
I just turned to him and I, I bore my testimony of Jesus Christ. And I had actually been fasting for this kid. And, and I wasn't sure if what I was saying was really totally true. Like I didn't really know for absolute sure if Jesus Christ really was who we said he was. But I wanted him to have that because I, I knew that what the gospel had done for me in my life. And I was desperately wanted that for him. I turned to him and I said, I know Jesus Christ is our brother and I know he lives and he loves us. And in that moment, I was just filled from head to toe and beyond. And it just reminded me of like with the Pentecost when they talked about them being filled with, with fire. And I felt that fire or that light reach out and touch him. And I knew more than anything that I had ever known before in my life, that he could not deny that testimony. And he said that. He said, I know you know that, which was unexpected. And after that experience, I mean, I just, I felt like I was walking on clouds or in another dimension. It was just this unreal experience that I didn't anticipate. And that was such an anchor for me later on. Um, I only had, I would say, one other experience that came close to that. And that came later on after my husband and I lost our, our first child. I love both of those experiences you shared, especially the one, as you talked about, wanting to believe <laughs> desperately that Jesus was the Christ. And you had the faith enough to bear testimony before you, before you really knew but I, I love that example because so often it's the faith before the miracle, right? Mm -hmm. I think before we can have the miracle, we have to show our faith in some form and often bearing testimony when maybe it's just a seed, it really can blossom from there because the Lord yeah. can bless us as a result of our faith and our willingness to, to go beyond what we know and bear testimony regardless. Yeah, that's very true. It's I think that seems to be the pattern for me in my life, to be honest. Um, I have to maybe be searching and, and really struggling in some way and then just take that step into the darkness. And then that faith is is rewarded in some way, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Now, some people just seem to get hit with like Job level adversity. And you are one of those people, Jocelyn. I'm sure you don't love <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's so true. I just, I just laugh because, uh, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> true. So can you share some of your history and give us a feel for what you've been through the last 20 years or so? Yeah. So I've been married, what, 19 years. And, um, about two years into my marriage, um, after my husband graduated from college and, and we moved out to his first uh, job out in North Carolina, we got pregnant. I was um, just so excited and I, I had a few reservations. I had some concerns that maybe, I don't know, that I, I didn't want to get too attached to this baby if something went wrong. I don't know if you'd call that a, a premonition or something. And I did actually have an experience when I was several months into my pregnancy where I was preparing things for the nursery and listening to this information about how to swaddle a newborn and this and that. And a, a thought came to me or like a words came to my mind that said, that's not going to happen. 
And I thought, wow, what, that's awful. How, like, what a terrible thing to think, you know? And I called my mom and she told me, don't worry, you know, we have healthy babies and quick deliveries. And, you know, it's not going to be a problem. Nine months into the pregnancy, uh, I felt something strange the night before. The next morning, I noticed that the baby wasn't moving. And I had expressed some concerns to the doctors, but, the, you know, they're kind of dismissive. And uh, when I went in, um, we went through several <laughs> lower level ultrasounds before they, they finally brought in the, you know, big ultrasound and, and the doctor said, this, this baby's not moving. And I, I had to deliver him. And the delivery itself was pretty horrific. The doctor didn't want to deliver him. In hindsight, I realize that now. I was left pretty much to myself. We didn't have any family out there who could get out there in time. And uh, the doctor had left and I came very fast, as my mom predicted. Um, and the doctor knocked me out and left me there uh, on the table with the baby crowning for about seven and a half hours. I won't go into too much detail with that, but it led to a lot of, um, it led to some issues with me physically because of that. And, uh, and of course, it, you know, having your baby come out the, the way he did after being stuck like that was pretty traumatic. My husband and I decided after that, if, if we go through something that traumatic, we, we want to be closer to family. So, we moved out to Utah, which was kind of a central location at the time because uh, I grew up in Colorado and, and his family lived in Las Vegas. So we thought this would be a, a good place to, to be. And then I, I taught for two years, about two years, and um, then I gave birth to our second son. But again, it was just kind of this crazy time where Paul was in several car accidents and the car was totaled and I was put on bed rest because the cord was wrapped around Nathaniel's neck my son's neck. And that's what had happened with the first son too. We found out the cord had been wrapped around his neck. An infection, which actually put me into preterm labor, which I'm kind of grateful for because if I hadn't had that, we wouldn't have known at that time that the cord was wrapped around his neck and that it was strangling him. So I was on bed rest in a hospital all day for and night for three months. And the doctor kept trying to put me on various medications, but I didn't really want to take anything, but it was very difficult actually to sleep because you have nurses coming in and they're always checking you and they're like moving monitors. And it's just like, it's so difficult. And I'm sleeping there without my husband. And so finally I kind of gave in and I, and I took some Ambien and he told me it would be safe to take and we want to get through the placenta. And, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that. I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back now, I realized that I was probably having an adverse reaction to that medication back then. Um, I couldn't focus. I couldn't read. It was just, my emotions were just all over the place. I mean, even though I was in a highly emotional state, it, I was, I was kind of abnormal. We had the baby early by C-section and they, even though he was bruised all over, they said that he was healthy, even though he was early because they had pumped me full of steroids and things like that. And they sent us home. When we got home, Nathaniel was just a frantic baby. He just couldn't sleep more than 45 minutes. I mean, even in the hospital, he looked like he was going to flip out of that little bed that they put newborns in. You know, there's all these other like chubby little newborns resting there and he's just flopping around like a fish out of water. Mm. And um, he, he couldn't have bowel movements and he just, we didn't know what was going on. The doctors told us, oh, well, he's colicky, you know. <laughs> but in looking back, after having gone through Ambien withdrawals and later other withdrawals myself, I realized, oh, you know what? That kid was going through withdrawals. That was a that was basically a druggy baby. 
that I took home with me. <laughs> and, you know, and here I was going through withdrawals too myself. So it was a pretty rough time. But it, it inspired me to really look into alternative medicine. I found a lot of things that really helped to heal us and to heal my husband from his many car injuries and accidents and things. And, um, and even though the economy got, was really bad for my husband's profession at the time, which is um, home building, that's when the housing market crashed. And, you know, we managed to make things work. And we kind of hawked everything that we owned and we would buy cars and he would fix them up and he'd wheel and deal. And we, we made ends meet. I would work nights um, so I could stay home and take care of Nathaniel. And then we got pregnant with our third baby. Jocelyn, I listened to that, that long list of just severe trial after trial. And we're not even getting to the big one yet. But through this period, what did you feel helped you maintain faith and optimism through these significant challenges? So there was an experience that I had out in North Carolina, actually, which I, I alluded to earlier. After I lost my son, I had read or heard about experiences of other people who had lost their babies in a similar way and had had some sort of um, a vision or like an encounter with them afterwards. I just desperately wanted something like that because I think one of the most traumatic things of losing a baby that way is that you don't get to say goodbye. You don't get to look into their eyes. You don't get to have that that parting kiss. You know, nothing. It's just they're already born and their life is gone. I would say just maybe a, a couple months later, we were driving down to the temple in, in South Carolina. And I believe I was fasting at that time, too. I had a friend who had a question. She was kind of going through a crisis of faith, and I was pondering on her question and, of course, thinking about my son. And while we were in the temple, uh, I had this experience that just, it's like my eyes were opened, and I could just see how the entire ceremony fit into the whole plan of salvation. At the, and then at the end of that session, I understood I would be there side by side with my son both the living and the dead working together to seal the entire family of our Heavenly Father together. And in my mind, I kind of saw that and, and really knew that I would be there with my son, raising him in the millennium like we're promised. When I was sitting with my husband in the celestial room, I told him what had come into my mind. A familiar feeling came to me, uh, similar to what I had experienced with my friend, but not as as big, but it was deep in the center of my soul. And maybe it's what other people called it, you know, like that burning in the bosom, but it was this white light, <laughs> tingly, sparkly light. I don't know, even know how to describe it in the center <laughs> of my soul that confirmed to me that that what came into my head was correct. And so I guess I would say that through those times, I just had this kind of unshakable testimony. I knew God was aware of me. I knew he, he cared. He had spoken to me on these occasions and other occasions, and I just, I just wasn't afraid. And really, that's what led to when I had my third baby, the, my experience with her, which was completely, radically different from my first two experiences. I made a covenant with God, and I said, look, I, I can't do this in a hospital again. I had some pretty bad experiences, and I think you want me to have another baby so if you do, I, I really have to have this baby out of a hospital. I need to do this naturally. I need to do it with a midwife. And I just got up from that that prayer that I made, and that covenant that I made, just with complete assurance that I knew that that, that was possible. I knew that it was going to be okay. 
And sure enough, that birth of my daughter was the most, one of the most peaceful and spiritual and beautiful experiences I'd ever had. Unfortunately, (laughs) uh, just about maybe two months later, um, she contracted meningitis, uh, viral meningitis. I was in the hospital with her for a few weeks and I was nursing her and I wasn't sleeping. And uh, my parents were taking care of our son. When we got back, we didn't realize that our son, who had just kind of been potty trained before this, uh, hadn't been going to the bathroom the entire time that I was in the hospital. And so the next thing we know, we're rushing our son to the ER because he's got impacted bowels. We had to go twice to get that worked through. And and the second time that Paul comes home in the middle of the night with our son and I'm keeping, I'm forcing myself to stay awake for their sakes, I guess. And uh, they come home and I think, okay, I can let myself go to sleep now. I start to go off, drift off to sleep. And next thing I know, my heart's racing and my eyes pop open and and I'm sweating and, and and I can't fall asleep. And I'm like, what, what was that? <laughs> I kept trying to go to sleep and this kept happening. And, and so I asked my husband for a blessing, but um, I couldn't sleep. And this insomnia continued on for a little while until I thought, you know, I can't function like this. We're trying to make ends meet in, on a shoestring budget, so to speak. And, and I have a toddler and a newborn. And if I could just get some sleep, I could deal with this. And there were other things going on at the time. My husband was going through a, a lot. And I needed to be there for him spiritually. And I just, I kept praying for sleep, right? And my prayers were being answered. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Like, I am so faithful. I have gone through so much these past few years. And I have not complained. I have just done everything right, you know? <laughs> Why am I not being blessed with sleep? And And finally, I thought, okay, well, (laughs) I need my sleep. So if God's not going to answer my prayers, I guess I'm going to go in to see the doctor. (laughs) And I went into my doctor, and he assured me that Ambien would not get through my uh, breast milk into the baby. So I started taking some Ambien. And I thought, I'm just going to take this long enough to, you know, just to reset my sleep cycle or something, you know, and, and get me back on track. But I could tell after the first few days that, despite whatever the medical literature says, this stuff was totally affecting my baby. She was disengaged and sleepy all the time. And she wasn't that way. Like even with the meningitis, she was like this happy, perky baby. So I thought, um, I don't want to do this to my baby, especially after what she's just been through. So I just cold turkeyed off of it after about five or six days. And that was when everything just completely changed. Our lives really completely changed at that point. We didn't know it and we didn't know that it was the sleeping pill that caused it. But all of a sudden I'm, I'm just rapidly losing weight and I'm in so much pain. I can't even walk around the block because I'm in so much pain, which was weird because I was very like fit and active before this. And I couldn't even read, like I literally couldn't read um, and, and, and even trying to would just set off my nervous system. I have to run to the bathroom and evacuate my bowels and I couldn't eat. And, and I felt like I was, every time I tried to stand up, it felt like I was going to pass out. So we started going into various specialists and getting, you know, EKGs and EEGs and <laughs> MRIs and CAT scans and just looking for any answers. And there were, there were none. And Every time I'd go into the doctor, they'd say, oh, this is postpartum depression or, you know, 
And I think, what? Don't, dude, don't even talk to me about depression. <laughs> okay. Because mm-hmm. I, I know what that is. And this is not that. Um, but I went through four months just being incapacitated, just kind of lying around on the floor, not able to do much. You know, I'm sleep deprived. I mean, I'm really not sleeping now. Right. Mm-hmm. And people in the ward are trying to help out and bring us meals and help out with my son. And finally, it just gets to the point where, you know, my family and, and everyone, friends, it's just everybody's kind of worn out. And and the doctors and people keep um, encouraging me to just get on psych meds. And so I thought, you know what, maybe they're right. And I'm just kind of broken. Maybe all this stress really did catch up with me. And I'm, I had some kind of a breakdown and so I went in and, and uh, I was prescribed an antidepressant and um, another tranquilizer, like the sleeping pill, but uh, stronger. And I got way better, like in almost instantaneously, I was better. And I thought, wow, like these, these antidepressants must really be doing their job because I feel so much better. And, and maybe everybody was right. I didn't realize it at the time, but what had happened is taking a stronger dose of the same medication that had injured me stabilized the the injury um like putting a cast on it right and so i was able to function but i was also continuing to injure my body at a cellular level Hmm. so and that happened for another three and a half years um, until i decided to get off so at this point you're you're feeling well you decided to get off the medication because you thought I'm well and I can be free of this medication and move forward healthy and happy. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I never really liked the idea of being on an antidepressant because I, I, I knew that wasn't depression wasn't really the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my doctors kept telling me to not get off of that drug until I got off the tranquilizer and I kept trying and it, I wouldn't do well. So I'd get back on. But eventually I just, I got off that antidepressant and that's a whole other book on its own, but I, it wasn't, it wasn't, I would say completely debilitating. And, um, and I got better and we wanted to have another baby, but, um, we knew that we needed to get off of this medication because there are warnings about getting pregnant on it. And, um, it's lorazepam. So there are, there's this whole class of, they're called benzodiazepines. So lorazepam or or Ativan and Klonopin and Valium and Xanax, they're all part of this class of drugs. Anyway, so I decided to try and cut it in small amounts, what I thought were small amounts at the time. Uh, my doctor wanted me to cut this drug in by a quarter, and I knew I couldn't do that, so I, I thought, okay, I'll cut it by eighths and try it that way. And my very first cut off of that medication threw me into a state that was every bit as severe as when I cold turkeyed off the Ambien the first time. And then I had to make another cut. And then I made another one. And by the time I got to that point, the only way to describe what I experienced at that point was just hell, really. It was, it was absolute torture, night and day agony without any relief from the suffering. And I'm talking physical pain, just deep in the bones kind of pain. It hurts to take a shower and you can't function and you can't watch TV. You can't read, you can't distract yourself and you can't nap, you can't sleep. So there's, there's just no end to this. And then there's the mental pain. There's what it does to your brain. What it does really is that it, it, it triggers your fight or flight. It incapacitates the 
system that is able to calm your body down. And so during that time, all you can feel really is fear and terror and, and maybe rage. You can't, you literally cannot feel joy and love and peace. And all of those things that we say are, uh, you know, the fruits of the spirit and that's what God is. I couldn't feel any of that. And so as I'm writhing on my floor in agony, (laughs) I'm thinking, where is God? Where is he? Because I'm trying to do everything I can. I'm having faith. I, I believe in miraculous things. I've experienced them in my life. And there's no end to the suffering. And I'm pregnant at this time, too. After uh, a couple of months of this, of still trying to get off the medication, I end up having a miscarriage. And my husband, by that point, finds these online communities and discovers that this is actually not uncommon at all, that there are a lot of people out there who experience this. And that it, it, it is related to the benzodiazepine and that the only way to sort of minimize the suffering is to taper in a specific way and to do it a lot more slowly than what doctors recommend. And many people switch over to a different form called Valium because it's longer acting and it's, it's a little easier to taper. So when I'm in the ER with this miscarriage, I'm practically begging this doctor to switch me over to Valium um, to see if it will ease my pain, uh, which he reluctantly does. And um, it does stabilize me a bit, but I spent the next almost year and a half slowly and painfully tapering off of about 13 milligrams of Valium. There were moments where I would have windows where maybe I wasn't as bad where some light would come in and I would have a little bit of maybe a moment of peace. But for the most part, that that entire time, it was just absolute hell. I think it's hard for people's minds, honestly, to comprehend that you can endure that much suffering and not be dead or die from it. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the irony is, is, is you can. And, and you mentioned uh, Job. <laughs> You know, before all of this, I was kind of this epitome of health with nice hair and teeth and skin. And I was fit and all this stuff. And of course, everything, my hair starts falling out like a cancer patient. My teeth are hurting. I feel like I have cavities in all my teeth. And I start getting boils all over my face and my body, except I don't know that they're boils because I'd never had that before. So they get misdiagnosed by this dermatologist and he kind of cuts my face up. and And I still have scars from that dermatologist. Um, but later on, I find out that's what it is. And I think, oh, yeah, no, that I really am like Job. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is kind of the last straw. Like everything that kind of made me me or made me human it has just been completely stripped from me. I think so often when we see that kind of suffering, we ask ourselves, how can God allow this level of suffering? How can <laughs> there be a God if he allows this type of, of pain? And I was thinking about... Um, Job's friends, I don't know if it was his friends, but they said, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, he's not doing anything for you, apparently. Just curse God and die. And Job's response, I will continue to bear testimony of a living God. But for you, in this this level of hellish suffering, what brought you through? What kept you from cursing God? <laughs> saying, I'm done with you. 
Oh, well, I think there was one point at the beginning when I had just crossed over to the Valium and I had my miscarriage and I'm praying. I'm still trying to pray. I'm still seeking, right? And I didn't realize this at the time. This was the first time of many throughout this whole taper where I would be thinking about something, even if I was just laying in bed and I literally couldn't move because I was practically catatonic. And a scripture would come into my mind. And here is somebody with brain damage who can't recall her social security number or her address, <laughs> right? And the scripture, these scriptures would come perfectly into my mind. There were two times really at the beginning when, when I was, one time when I was actually literally laying on my floor writhing in agony and the scripture comes into my mind and s- that said, um, how sore you know not, how, uh, you know what? And, and here's what, that's the irony. I can't quote it now. And I, I quote it in my book, but, um, and it was Christ speaking to Joseph Smith and telling him that these things that I've endured, that God endured, that the Savior endured, like how sore you know not, how horrible you know not. And it just kept looping over and over again in my head. And I thought, okay, well then, okay, maybe God knows. Maybe nobody else in the whole planet understands this kind of suffering, but maybe he does. Uh, and, and then when I got onto the Valium and I'm praying very hard for what to do, where to go, how to do this. And I just kind of had this realization that what I was experiencing was the definition of hell on so many levels and, and not just physically, it was spiritually. I would just, it's like the, the light and the shield that had always protected me had corroded. And I was, could, I was just open to all of the, this, I guess you would say buffetings from Satan that I had never experienced before. And uh, I, I was constantly having to fight these things and these thoughts and these ideas. It was just a constant struggle. And I thought to myself, okay, this is the definition of hell. The thought about Lehi, you know, that there must need to be an opposition in all things, my son. And that came to me and I thought, okay, if there is an opposition all, of, of all things, if hell is real, then heaven is too. It has to be. And I may not be able to feel that right now, but I'm going to live my life as if. I'm going to live as if that is true and I will prove God and see if that is the case. And so I just did what I could. I, you know, I did what I felt was best for my family. I continued to do church. I continued to do what I could for my kids' sake because I knew that even if the church wasn't still totally true or everything I believed was true, I knew that it bore good fruits and I wanted that for my kids. And so I just kind of hung on to that and, and the hope that the things would get better and it wasn't until my my mind healed, till my brain healed quite a bit, that I could then look back and recognize what we often call those tender mercies, right? That mm-hmm. that were present, but it, it was hard for that to to click in my head. But God, I feel, made Himself very obvious to me in ways that He normally didn't, because He couldn't in the other ways that He normally would. I was thinking about. Mother Teresa, and I don't know if you're familiar with her story, but for a long period of time, she she apparently was not sharing this with those around her, but she would write letters to her superior and say, I, I don't feel God. Mm. In all of this work that she was doing, she she did not feel God for years, and she felt that, that the heavens were closed. And I think so often for those of us who are trying the hardest— Sometimes we may feel that the heavens are closed, 
when our suffering is at its worst, we will feel that the heavens are closed, like what the Savior went through when he was dying on the cross. Mm -hmm. Why have you abandoned me? But I feel like it's in those moments that we get to really show what we're made of and choose faith. Mm -hmm. And that is what God wants to see from each of us, that in our Gethsemane moments, will we choose him? For we have to, in the absence of of evidence, in the absence of, as you described, not being able to feel the spirit, that we have to be so intentional and say, I don't feel it, but I'm going to continue to choose it. There's this really great quote from this last conference by Elder Holland. And he said, if we finally lose hope, we lose our last sustaining possession. That's very true. He relates it to Dante of all things, which I thought was so appropriate because I I use that analogy in my book of his circles of hell, right? And how maybe one day you're on the ninth circle and oh, maybe you go up to the fifth, but you're still in hell. (laughs) But as you are in that purgatory or that hell, one of the only things you have is that choice. You can either choose to have hope, you can choose to have faith, and you can choose to keep trying, or you can just choose to give up, and you can choose to die, basically, to die without hope. And I see that kind of courage every day. I see it still every day, like you said. Why do these people have to suffer? These people in this community that I'm reaching out to, them, trying to help, they are suffering so terribly. But so many of them have hope. And when they have those good moments, whenever there is just that one, maybe just that one moment of brightness, they just cling to that and they have that gratitude. They believe that there is more of that to come. And so they continue on. Now, this wasn't just a severe trial for you, but obviously for your whole family. And I'm curious, how did your husband, Paul, navigate this very challenging period and how how has this affected your relationship well his perspective on that may be very different from mine (laughs) I believe he had angels by his side the whole time working two jobs taking care of an invalid wife raising two children pretty incredible you know Paul had seen his own father go through a brain injury after a terrible car accident he was somewhat familiar with these struggles it kind of prepared him honestly for this but really, he, he didn't believe that always, I, I, he didn't always believe that I was going to get better. I don't think he even had the same kind of hope that I did, which is ironic. When I would ask him, he would, if he thought I was going to be, get better, because I just wanted that reassurance, he would never tell me yes. After, I'd say about one or two months of being completely finished with my taper, we were being interviewed for this documentary. And, um, uh, she asked him that same question, like, well, how did you have hope? You know, how did you? And he said, I didn't. And, and I was just so flabbergasted at that. I had no idea that that's how he felt. And I was so upset. And honestly, you know, it just bothered me on so many levels. But then as he continued with the interview, he said, um, so I was making plans to care for Jocelyn for the rest of our lives. You know, I was making financial arrangements and trying to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to do this so I could take care of her like this. And I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, at the time I was what, like between the 35 and 37, and he was planning on taking care of me for the next 30, 40, 50 years like that. Why would he do that? I mean, really, honestly, I, I get that we were married in the temple. Okay, yeah. 
But why would he do that when his life held so much promise? And then it just hit me. Oh my gosh, because he loves me. Even though my hair fell out and I had boils and I wasn't a good mom. I couldn't like take care, you know, I wasn't reading our kids' bedtime story or I tried, you know, but I wasn't consistent. And I was not a good wife. I wasn't somebody he could confide in and talk to at the end of the day. You know, I was miserable to be around. And he thought that I was worth that. I mean, my life had value. And that was the first moment, I think, where I finally felt that first glimmer of God's love again. Harkening back to my young women's days, that I'm a daughter of my Heavenly Father who loves me. That I didn't have to prove my worth in any way. You know, that I didn't have to sing or be brilliant or funny or, or do service and take care of other people or even be perfectly faithful that I was still loved completely. And that was a real turning point for us in our relationship, to be honest, because we had had a, a lot of rocky times where I just didn't trust him in a lot of ways, to be honest. And um, after that, I, I found myself letting go a lot of that kind of fear and trusting him. Actually, any trial that we've experienced it, after time and, and with grace, it, it draws you closer together. And that's definitely what's happened with us. I love that. I mean, Paul's a rock star. But I think that that is the power of a, a covenant. When we've made a covenant and we're serious about it, we treat a relationship very differently. We see that relationship very differently. If, if we see see that relationship as being for time only versus for eternity, and we're fully committed to that covenant that we made not just to our spouse, but to God. That is the power of, of covenants in real time right there. I love that. Almost made me start to cry. <laughs> um, so now you've been healing. You've walked through hell and you've come out on the other side to tell the tale. How are you changed and how is the trajectory of your life changed since having had this experience? Well, I'm almost exactly five years free of any medications and I'm still healing every day. You know, I hate to think that I had to go through something, something that bad to become the person I am today. But uh, the truth of it is I am a different person completely in many ways. And I wasn't a bad person before by any means. I was a very good person <laughs> who did very good things. And I feel like many of those things I kind of lost and I, I've had to regain. I had to re sort of build my testimony from the ground up. But in doing so, it's it's stronger and I'm learning more than I could have before. I don't think I could have had the same understanding before of other people, of their suffering, of having that kind of compassion that desire to help people. It's not just that, but it's that I was put in a position where I could help people. Not just a few people here and there, but literally, quite literally, hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of people through the the work that I do with my YouTube channel or with the nonprofits that I work with or various things like that. It's kind of hard to comprehend and I don't, I think, most days comprehend how many people may have been helped by the information that I share in the work that I do. But I receive so many messages every week 
of people telling me that. And I think God doesn't want to see us all suffer that much. He, he does want to see things made right for a lot of people. He wants to see his children heal and for us to change this world and make it better um, for future generations. And so he's, he's provided a way and I can be an instrument in his hands in a way now that I, I of course, couldn't have before. And there's a level of joy and peace that I experience, that I, this gratitude that I have for what I call my perfect days, that days where the light is on in my brain, where I'm, I'm with it, I'm there completely. And I'm just so grateful. I, I just, it is like heaven. It is, you know, even if things are going bad and there's still a lot of stuff going on in our lives, but I'm so grateful and I'm so at peace that I can't really be in a place of, I couldn't be in a place of despair. And that's with a son who now also has been disabled by an antibiotic. It was like deja vu. And, and we've been through years now with him, pain and suffering and without answers, without, you know, it's been, his journey has been a little different from mine. And there've been times where he's been really good and, and things, but it's, it's brutal watching your child go through this and not really having the answers or the means to really do anything to ease his suffering. But I am learning ways to help him establish a relationship with God in a way to draw on that power, to draw on that power for himself and to not feel like he has to give that power away to the medical field or to other people or things like that. Because really, truly, that that ability to heal is within us. It is between us and our maker. I see it every day. These people who are terribly injured, brain and body injuries heal, sometimes miraculously. And it's not because of the doctors. Most of us stop going to doctors because they can't help us and they heal. If you look at it with the eyes of faith, you understand that these healings are all miraculous. And it is all because these people have the faith and the relationship with um, the God that they understand of their understanding to heal. Well, I'm always fascinated to hear stories of, of extreme suffering. And then when people turn that suffering around and they become great helps to their fellow men. I've heard that adversity can either break us or it can break us open mm. and make us more able to be vulnerable and authentic to love others. And I, I see that in you, Jocelyn. And you had talked about that exchange between Joseph Smith and the Lord. And, and the Lord was, was talking about the extreme suffering he had gone through. But I was thinking of his response to Joseph as Joseph was, was suffering so exquisitely. And he said to Joseph, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. I'd love to hear that you have been broken open, that you have used this experience to to become better and to bless your fellow men. And so I, I find that so inspiring and I'm grateful for your faith and your endurance because sometimes it takes a walk through hell to be able to bless thousands. Obviously we've heard bits and pieces of your story, but if people want to hear more, where can they find your book? They can find it on amazon.com. Just look it up under Seeds of Hope, A Journey Through Medication and Madness Toward Meaning. And they can also find it at the publisher, which is moongladepress.com or Barnes & Noble. And also, if people are looking for any information, if they feel that they or a loved one might need help with this topic of, of 
a drug injury or getting safely off of these medications, um, they can go to my channel. It's called Benzo Brains. Um, just type that into YouTube and it'll pop up pretty easily. And um, they can watch all my videos. They can message me there. And I'm happy to, I get back to people pretty quickly who have any questions. And um, I'm always happy to help someone who, who uh, is in need of, of any information or encouragement during this. Well, we're to our final question here. Why in all this are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored church of Jesus Christ? I think there are two main reasons for that. The profound spiritual experiences that I had really were what I, I drew from in my darkest moments, and I still do. I think back to those, and I cannot deny what I experienced. I can't deny that. And so when things don't make sense, sometimes with the gospel, with the church, whatever it is that comes up with my son, I just think, okay, well, I know that's true. And I know that whenever things don't make sense, if I just kind of stick with it long enough, if I search it out, eventually it all fits together in some way. And I know enough now at the age of 42 <laughs> to be patient and to look for that, that it's all going to make sense at some point. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn. Thank you for being broken open so that you can continue to help those who suffer. Your story has really inspired me tonight. Thank you, Tara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.